where you just don't talk to strangers, you don't meet other people. You certainly are never brought into contact with people at such a sort of profound spiritual level. I mean, what the church does, it, it demarcates a space and says everybody can meet everyone. Everyone is safe to talk to. And it's a very simple gesture. It doesn't really require a belief in the supernatural, but it requires somebody to do it. So as a result, you've proposed a kind of secular alternative, a communal meal experience that, I mean, a fictional, that you call the agape restaurant. Can you tell us about it? Yes, well, I tried to imagine what might an atheist take away from this? How could we how could we put something of this back into the secular world? And it struck me that all organized religions have a tradition of eating together, communal eating. And in fact, Holy Communion, before it was a church service, was a shared meal, what was called an agape feast, where Christians would, in early Christian communities, would, would gather together to, to break bread and invite strangers into their midst. It's a charming idea. Where do, where do we have anything like that today? Nowhere. You know, the average modern restaurant or diner or bar. It's an anonymous place. There are people, but it's an anonymous place. So I imagined um, being inspired by th this tradition of uh, religious communal eating and that atheists too might learn to eat together, might learn to structure their encounters with one another around a table without just saying, you know, what do you do? But to get to some of the same vulnerable material as religious communities know how to address. It sounds like part of what you think religion does well has to do with the psychology of a community. You also write about Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which you describe as one of the most psychologically effective mechanisms ever devised for resolving social conflict. What do you mean? That's right. I mean, religions seem to know both what we want from communities and also what makes living in a community difficult. And one of the things that makes other people difficult is that we're full of resentments against them and we get into fights with them and then we don't know how to get out of those fights. We don't know how to forgive. We don't know how to heal divisions between people. And Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is a fascinating ritual where the entire Jewish community essentially um, says sorry to one another and accepts the apologies of others under the guidance of God. And it's a sort of miraculous day that does that very important thing, which is to enable people to move on from, from disputes. As I say, that's something that generally we feel rather at a loss to know how to do that without some help. You see, a lot of what religions do, a lot of what religious rituals are, is communal forms of behavior that help you to do something that's very hard to do just on your own. You could look at a lot of what religions do as lending structure to important psychological events. Mm. So what else would you like to steal from religion for atheism? We've been talking about the kind of rituals and communal values. What about art, music? Yes. Well, I think one of the things that religions know is that if you're trying to influence somebody, if you're trying to have an impact on somebody's life, if you do it simply through intellectual discussion and argument, you're not going to get very far. So all religions employ other means. They touch us through our senses. They give us songs to sing. They tell us to sit in certain ways. They put pictures in front of our eyes. They build buildings. In other words, they use our senses to pull us in certain, what they think of as optimal directions. You see, religions tell us things like, you know, you've got to love one another. You've got to forgive one another. But that can sound awfully trite and boring. But if you come across a, a great work of art, a, a great film, a, a great piece of music, you know, you can listen to a a Bach cantata, and suddenly you think, oh, goodness, that's what forgiveness is. You know, I'd forgotten it. It had gone a bit stale in my imagination, but it's now come back to life. 
What would atheist art look like then, or atheist-inspired art, or great art in the well, service of atheism? Well, atheists um, have lots of art. It's not we don't we don't need more art. I think it's just about the way you frame art. Let me give you an example of um, the the American artist Mark Rothko. See, Rothko wanted to change the world. Rothko wanted to see his paintings, in his own words, as an echo chamber of humanity's grief. So, in other words, this was a kind of form of public consolation, if you like. Now, you would never pick that up from the captions in an average museum. You just think Rothko is a terribly intimidating and slightly ambiguous and strange, very famous American artist. But a museum, the way I'd like to, to do a museum, would, would actually bring that out. It would tease that didactic side of Rothko, or indeed any artist. Most artists want to change the world in some way. It's just you wouldn't really know it from the average museum presentation. Museums are, on the whole, very neutral. They're white.